Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. My point and the reason why I think we need prudence and so that virtue applied to law is because we only know things when we love them. Okay, welcome everyone to this episode. I am very pleased today to be having a conversation with my colleague, Dr. Mariana Orlandi, who many of you have heard from before. But this time, what's different today is she's the one on the hot seat. I know what questions are going to be asked, and she has the ineluctable job of answering the questions. Welcome, Dr. Orlandi, or welcome back to your microphone. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Stewart. For anyone for whom this is their first episode, a brief introduction of Dr. Orlandi. She received her PhD in law from the University of Padua in Italy and from the University of Innsbruck, Austria, prior to moving to Texas or God's country. She was a 2019-2020 James Madison Associate Research Scholar and Lecturer in the Department of Politics at Princeton University. She was admitted to the Italian Bar in 2015 after graduating magna cum laude from the University of Padua. She practiced as a criminal lawyer in Milan and worked in the United States as a policy research analyst. Her interests and research focus are on issues of life and its legal and international protection, in particular through the lens of criminal law. So all that to say, she knows what she's talking about. We have a real expert. Yes. Thank, thank you, Dr. Stewart. Although, yeah, what am I well, talking about today? Today, we're talking about the nature of law, not any particular law here or there, but the very nature of this thing we do as human beings, where we govern ourselves by rules that we pass and processes that we create to adjudicate uh, when people break the rules. And I was fascinated in your treatment of this um, at a talk that you gave recently, that you set up two different ways of, of thinking about what kind of thing law is as an enterprise, kind of at that global level. And one of those was a very Germanic way of thinking, law as science. Their word is Wissenschaft. And the other is law as perhaps art or practice. And then you went on to make a case for one of those two as the better way to understand it. But before we get there, could you just lay out in brief um, those two different ways of understanding what kind of thing law is? Absolutely, Dr. Stewart, and thank you for this introduction, which also tells me that A, you paid attention, B, you actually got, you know, you, you actually understood what I was trying to say. And it's not, I must admit, I was not trying to say one of the most easiest things because, as you said, there is this view of law as a science, and there is this other view of law as an art, as what I call the jurisprudential art which I believe is closer to reality or to the reality that we want when we say that we want things to be fair and that's our natural desire. It's difficult to talk about these things because there is a tendency, and I was trying to point it out during my talk, of thinking that there cannot be justice unless we have clear rules that would apply in the same exact way at all times formulas. We love mathematics, and that's not new to our century. That was, as I was trying to point out, 
that was true in, you know, in the pre-Socratic philosophy. There is at some point this, you know, escaping in the scientific world and setting, you know, leaving aside the word of the, what Galileo then will ask the essences of things. We don't want to attempt the essences of things. We don't want to know exactly what is the just rule of the specific case because it's easier to think there is a right and is wrong and that applies to anybody at all times. So have I answered your, your broader question? Yeah, I think we're getting there. I mean, maybe one way in a sense rephrase the question is to ask about the science one particularly. So we live in the age of the algorithm where the algorithm determines what pops up in our Google search. And so the algorithm determines in many ways, or at least significantly influences what we buy and whose links we see in Facebook or on Twitter, right? Social media is all about the algorithm. YouTube, what video you see is a product of an algorithm. This is all an attempt to reduce things to mathematics, right? To formulas, as you mentioned, that we can rely on to be executed the same way every time. And so the question is, why shouldn't law also be arithmetized or algorithmized, right? Made into an algorithm that meets out with more and more data put in will meet out the correct decision, the just and fair decision every time. Because thank God we're all made different <laughs> and there is no such thing as the same case presented in front of the judge. There is no such thing as the same kind of person that committed a crime. There is no such thing as the same crime. And as I pointed out last, yeah, when we had our initial conversation, I know that everyone I talked to would be terrified at the idea of being judged by an algorithm. And this fear doesn't come out of a distrust for science. You would have the greatest scientists being terrified by knowing that a computer just acquires data, can be more and more sophisticated and gets to that. And why is that? Well, my point and the reason why I think we need prudence and so that virtue applied to law is because we only know things when we love them. And the only way to love things is to look at them and to make that effort and exercise of forgetting about all our preconception or our prejudice of, you know, what things should be, could be, would be. And just look, look at the specifics, look at what really happened in that very moment. Now, if this might sound as something that people don't usually think, you know, why maybe the algorithm only misses one thing once. And, but we all have the experience of finding the same ad on social media after we actually bought what we needed. So, I mean, that algorithm is not, is not that good. And a judge would understand way more clearly. And why? Because there is a familiarity because we have an experience as human being. And so we understand each other because we have the same experience. And many times it's impossible to describe what it is that we are experiencing. And the example I make, you know, it's like falling in love. So we don't have a formula of how that happens, but people who fall in love understand the other person who is in love and they understand their actions in a way that, I mean, I challenge I still need to find a computer that can understand teenagers in love as well as you know one of their peers. But yes, well, we are all waiting on someone to understand teenagers. Maybe mm. maybe the computer's worth a try. So it seems to me, in an age dominated by algorithms, it will immediately leap 
to mind and you covered some of that. What some of the vices associated with a human driven system as opposed to a machine driven system would be. So we see some of these evident in sports like in tennis where the cyclops is now used a lot more than it used to be to determine which balls went in and which balls went out. But I think what you're pointing us to is that one thing that makes judicial decision-making different is that in a situation of tennis, it's easy, it's a very simple decision that has very few inputs as to whether the ball was in or out, right, on the line or past the line. But when it comes to meeting out the appropriate punishment for a crime, there are a lot more I hesitate to say there are a lot more variables because it's not just that there are more variables. If that were the case, it would only be a matter of needing lots and lots of computing power. But what you're suggesting is it's something beyond the need for more data that makes the judicial decision to be made beyond the possibility of a computer. Yes, that's exactly right. And it it shouldn't be misunderstood as you know, being in favor of a certain form of relativism that says, oh, you know, the same situation can be looked at in different ways, depending on... No, there is one just law for that specific case. The thing is, the work of the judge is to find that very specific one for that very specific instance. So the difference between tennis and law and, you know, tennis ball being out or being in is that it's we are never only looking at one thing. We are never only looking at, well, did you... You know, did you have the gun in your hand or not? Or th- that's not enough. You know, we, we will ascertain facts, but then we have to ascertain, you know, something that is <laughs> the most difficult part, but which is the intention. And we can't just give up on it saying, oh, well, that's impossible. Some criminal lawyers have tried, you know, like saying, well, we cannot analyze intention. So to just have, you know, some objective responsibility, you do this, you're going to be punished regardless of, well, I find this, in my country, it's also unconstitutional to do that in criminal law, right? So there are forms of responsibility that you can attribute just because of a situation is, you know, is verified and is there. But in most of the cases, when we talk about justice, we want the human element to be present. And the only way to recognize that human element is another human looking at it. Oh, that's that's interesting. So what occurs to me there is then that suppose someone adopts your view, they find it compelling, as I find it compelling, and they say, okay, look, you got me. This is law is not going to be a science if by science we mean a set of law like properties from which the correct answer can be deduced inexorably by just feeding in all of the data, the circumstances, and the relevant set of rules, right? It's not the sort of wooden application of law-like principles. But if it's not going to be that, and it's going to be the art, right? not Wissenschaft, but jurisprudence, then the virtues of being good, right? the, the virtues of being one of the people whose job it is to arrive at justice are going to be different. So if you're the scientist, right, high levels of precision, care with the data, Lots of data, more, more, more. Those are key virtues to getting things right. Replicability, right? But with jurisprudence, what are the virtues then that if we're going to think of law in this way, then that means what it means to be a good judge, what it means to be a good attorney is affected by how we see that. So what sorts of characteristics should our system be inculcating in lawyers and judges if we had this jurisprudential view of what law is? 
Thank you very much. This is a great question. And this is also, let's have this premise. We're not arguing for a big difference because what we're arguing for is simply what the system was until recently, I would say. Like what I see is a decadence in the legal profession where exactly the virtues that are needed are absent now, but that was not the case. As I was mentioning, you know, the framers of the constitution, the founding fathers, these were all lawyers. And when we talk about judges, we talk about good behavior. And what does this good behavior mean? Doesn't mean, oh, they treated their children, you know, they didn't make anything wrong. There's so much more than that. Like it's a kind of nobility. So what are the virtues that are needed? What actually all the virtues? And I know that it seems like, it sounds like, you know, I'm aiming too high, but I'm not because the virtues, and that's something we learned also at the Austin Institute, you know, with our programming here, the virtues are all interconnected. It doesn't mean we need to become saint before becoming a judge or becoming a lawyer. And, you know, and I was saying, as I was saying the other night, good enough would be a sufficient step forward if we talk about it. But I also don't want to diminish the legal profession and the class of lawyers because there are rules you know, of the deontology and how we need to behave as lawyers and judges that have always been there. Like lawyers should never lie. A judge would never accept a gift from, you know, one of the parties. Like, and these things, why are they there? They're not just formalities. They are there because there is this conception that you need to be honest. There must be this honesty in the way you look at things. So what are the virtues that are needed? All of them. They are interconnected. So thankfully, the moment we habituate ourselves, you know, to be courageous or to be temperate or to be, we are habituating ourselves more or less to all the other ones. And, you know, what should lawyers study? Well, a lot less statutes and a lot more, you know, the questions like, why do we have employment laws? Why do we have maternity leaves? Why do we have, because if we knew what the reasons were, then we act as lawyers, as judges, as academics in the legal world in a different way. I hope I answered, but... No, that's good. So it brings to mind another question, which is where in the legal system will this difference of view and the difference of the way that we habituate attorneys, where will it make the biggest difference? Where will we see it the most? I think it affects the most honestly when drafting policies a lot more than actually in administering justice. I have the sense that people are very quick in arguing what they're for and what they're against in terms of slogans. And I know that this is a topic that came up in other conversations we had here at the Institute, you know, that if politics is reduced to slogans, then we never have the right party because there are always some, you know, nuances. And so if we apply that to law, because we know that, you know, there will not be one answer that is one size fits all. So in the same way, when drafting policies, it should be a little more nuanced what we asked our politicians to do once they will be in office. You know, what will be the law you'll have on adoption? What will be the one you'll have on assisted dying? On the controversial issue, it cannot be just always a no, 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 or a yes, yes, yes. I do believe that there are certain absolute no's, right? But in the wording of laws, you can find those nuances. It's different, as I always bring up when I talk about abortion, it's different saying we have a right to abortion to saying, I will not punish you if you had one. It's a matter of words, right? The consequence for the woman will be the same, but we are looking at things in a completely radically different way. So it affects a lot that, but I think it also affects the way then that we will look at the judge. We will not hold them responsible because 
they made some promises, right? Or like precedent is a precedent, is not the idea behind a precedent is that the new case needs to be similar. But if the case is different, I cannot be bound to it in a way that becomes mechanical. And the idea that the science is enough is fake. All legal systems, you know, the most Calcinian ones have had to deal with the fact that legal systems are not complete and they are contradictory. So in the end, there is a freedom of interpretation that will just make up for the need of contradiction and of holes within the system. Yeah, I think what you're bringing us to is where law touches ethics in the sense that in ethics, one of the problems, perennial problems, is that while there are, well, it's controversial to say there are some exceptionless moral norms or moral absolutes. It's not controversial in this room necessarily, but it's controversial in some rooms. But even those who accept the view that there are moral absolutes, exceptionless moral norms, we're often misunderstood because we don't actually think there are that many. For the most part, what we're dealing with are rules that are highly contingent based on circumstance. And so I think one of the things, if I don't misunderstand you, that you're pointing us to is that in the law, we're going to need to bear in mind the issue of circumstances, both in the application of the law, that there won't be that judges have a duty not simply to, in a wooden fashion, say, what is the nearest case just like this one? Well, let's do exactly what the judge did in that one, and that's what's fair. But rather to take into account all of the circumstances of this case. And if there is an exceptionless rule to be applied, then you apply it. But that many rules, in fact, do have exceptions. And so that's how it affects the judge. But alternatively, what you're pointing us to that I think is also important is that legislators need to bear in mind that judges and attorneys will be operating a system of enforcement and adjudication that is not merely woodenly applying their rules, but is trying to be cognizant of the huge variety of human experience that goes on out there in the world as we bump up against one another in trying to go about living our lives in normal ways. Is that fair? Absolutely, Dr. Stewart. You got to all the most important points of what I'm trying to pointing at. And, you know, you said you're talking about a law that is ethics and it touches upon. And of course, yes, but now I shouldn't be misunderstood in this, but law is always ethics in the sense that even when we are not touching on the most controversial, the most fundamental issues, still the fact that the law of the case sounds fair to everyone in the room, that's because... It's a morality, it's a sense of ethics that we are born with. Like it's in each one of us. So we will recognize the injustice of the unjust law or of the law applied in the unjust way, even in the petty details. I also brought it up that this connection with ethics is also what made Cicero criticize lawyers. Cicero criticized them because they were going away from ethics and they will, you know, they cared about the, the sophistry and the accusation of like being always concerned only with words, you know, and how we use them. And then I'll find the, the solution of the case, which yes, on paper, it's perfect, but it's just so far from reality. And I think it was Seneca that said, when we attach ourselves to the words and, to, and we become expert in words as lawyers, there is a movement from philosophy to philology. And so I smile because I think that 
most of the criticism we might have with some of the textualist interpretations of the U.S. Constitution might be exactly, you know, a move from philosophy and what is right and wrong, you know, in abstract terms, and what is the just rule of that single case to what's the meaning of that single word according to the most recent update of the vocabulary, because, I mean, vocabularies now are updated constantly, depending on, you know, who, who said the last thing. But, yeah. Yeah, I was struck in your talk by how the examples of this dilemma within the law went all the way back. You just mentioned Cicero and Seneca and mentioned, and I think it was, I think it was Cicero that you were mentioning who was theorizing about law and describing the nature of law in contradistinction to the Epicureans, in some ways against the Epicureans. So say a little more about that contrast, because I think it sounds very similar to what we're facing today. Yes. Um, Cicero was saying, you know, that the bene vivendi disciplina was the discipline of living well, was what ethics is about. Is that That's the true philosophy to him. So I was bringing it up because in the definition of Alpian, one of the oldest definition of what the work of lawyers is, Alpian is saying, to do law is to do true philosophy. So it's saying, okay, that's also what, you know, what, what does Cicero mean by true philosophy? That was a question. It's like, well, it's ethic and it's the bene vivendi disciplina. And then he says, that's not what lawyers do because the law has been subject to, you know, an overtaking by this Epicurean attitude. What Cicero says is that Epicureans do not have a title to talk about honestum. They, because they, having submitted justice to pleasure, how can they talk about what is honest? Honest in the old sense of the term, right? So to what is noble. I think that the best translation of that honestum is noble in current English. Therefore, the analysis goes of Cicero's view, for Cicero, justice needs to be stoic and so oriented towards it. So what I was trying to say is that in a world, the contemporary world, where rights are desires, Whatever we desire becomes a right. And if the majority has the desire, then that desire becomes a right. We cannot argue that we're being stoic, correct? So it, being Epicurean, I would say that Cicero would not agree that our law is an instrument of true philosophy. Yeah, I think that's right. The translating it forward, the problem we run into is if things are strictly emotivist and strictly whoever controls the process of the generation of law controls the outcome of legal cases without without recognizing that there is there is a standard which is not subject dependent just to say it is it is morally real right and that standard is justice and then that of course kicks the issue to there has to be behind the practice of law which always seems to be this very right law books are full of words it seems to be a very highly formalized process that has a lot of strange jargon and arcane processes and tedious proceedings. And there is real value in all of those to the extent that those are the methods by which we get to what lies behind the law at which the law aims, which is justice. And remembering that there is a face. And I mean, you see it when you're a lawyer, your clients have a face. That law, those books, you know, of words, they apply to a face of somebody who's crying and telling you, I'm about to lose my house, you know, because of a facility. It doesn't need to be something that is, you know, morally relevant, but 
the law is this powerful instrument that can be against us or can be for us. So that's the face that you're seeing in front of you. And and that's something I brought up, you know, the absence of prudence in the sense of the jurisprudence and this virtue in the law for me was very clear if we're arguing, you know, I brought it up, the abortion case and Roe v. Wade. How can you look at a client a face if that client is, I mean, if the, there is the, the question of whether the case is moot because the person is no more there and the baby's already born and we're talking, you know, three years on later. Uh, what are we judging? Are we judging words? Is that the job? I don't think so. Yeah. So I wonder, do they make lawyer jokes in Italy? Honestly, a little less. Uh, I have to be honest. I wondered. We're not called sharks. There is less this idea about lawyers and jokes about lawyers. I, yeah. I must confess that, yeah, they're not. I was asking, you know, my family and like, why is that that we remained a little more noble? I don't know. Maybe because they're not as rich. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah, probably that's very much the case. Well, yeah. here in America, lawyer jokes are one of our favorite pastimes. But I find that much like our criticism of Congress critters, right? Everyone hates Congress. It's one of the institutions in our society with the lowest level of trust and approval, except their congressmen, right? And I find that lawyer jokes tend to stop the moment someone actually needs an attorney's help in some process, the moment you've been wronged, right? It's a noble profession. You read it in the Greek tragedies, you Greek it, you, you find it in every novel, you know, this people looking for justice. And when somebody can speak for you, the language of the law that you cannot speak, and there is an accusation against you and you need to defend yourself, it just, I mean, what we say is that to the priest, to the doctor and to the lawyer, you never lie, because <laughs> um, right, because you want you want them to have the right solution for you. So there are three figures that um, they are important in our lives. I'm sorry to say that, but well, I think that brings us back around to the overarching issue and the big takeaway for me is that in a, in a way, this choice between law as a Wissenschaft, as a science, and law as a jurisprudential art is a hugely architectonic choice, not just for the way law proceeds, does it proceed as attempting to arrive at a formulaic answer deduced by strictly applying law-like generalizations, or is it the result of a process which starts from principles but also applies those principles in a way that is nimble and accounts for all of the details, right? So that's one way it matters, but ultimately the way it matters most I think is that that you pointed out that you made me think what you made me realize the way it matters most is is the very possibility of nobility itself in law. We talk in hallowed terms about respect for the rule of law. But that's only something to be revered if law is respectable. And the way it's respectable is you're you're pointing out through this apprehension of law as a jurisprudential art wherein we're aiming at the just. We're applying where we really do have genuine virtues in play and that it's justice. Aristotle has this great line in the politics that when, when someone goes to the judge seeking remedy, they are going to justice itself embodied in the judge. Now, sure, maybe that's sort of the, the ideal to be honored in the breach because no judge is perfect, but it's an ideal. Right. And it's an ideal that we hold up and that we genuinely do try to fulfill. 
And that will matter tremendously, even in the as we come down from the 30,000 foot view to our regular everyday lives, whether there is an ideal like that will matter for how the judge behaves in this case and how the lawyer behaves on that issue. Yeah. And as I said, thank you. Also, one of the reasons to talk about these things was the sense of living in a paradox that I felt when I was listening to these prayers, prayers for lawyers that would uphold human dignity and that would defend life. And so my question immediately was, well, how can they? Like, if we believe that their only job is applied law, then why are we even praying for that? If they are just being mechanical applications of... So the fact that we pray for that, you know, we hope that they do it, that then means that there is a, a sense of freedom, a margin in which there is room for vice in these people and there is room for virtue. That's what we need. It's virtue. All right. Well, we're quickly coming to the end of our time, but I wanted to ask sort of on the way out, if someone's listening and really intrigued by this and wants to read more, what books or articles would you recommend people pick up? And then we can put those in the show notes. Hmm. There are really several. I would always recommend being a fellow, not only with James Madison program, but also with the James Wilson Institute with Professor Arcs. I would recommend his books. Absolutely. First Things and uh, Beyond the Constitution. I think that that's a great point to start. And then more recently, you know, of course, I mean, the writings of Professor George, that's another thing that I would recommend. These have been two of my teachers. Marianne Glendon, for me, in many other ways, is another author that should be read. She argues a lot for the need of comparison in law. All right. Yeah, those are really helpful. And we will put links to those authors and books down in the show notes. So look for that. And thank you very much for giving us a few minutes today to talk about very important sort of formative issues of the nature of law. And we look forward to your next episode here and whatever our next episode is. And we'll see everybody next time. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.